0: This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge.
1: Here's Marianne Weisenthal. I'm speaking today with Owen O'Kane. Owen is a psychotherapist, former UK National Health Service mental health lead, and a best-selling author. His first two books are 10 Times Happier and 10 to Zen. He's just released his third book, How to Be Your Own Therapist, boost your mood and reduce your anxiety in 10 minutes a day. Owen joins me today from London, England. Welcome to the Life Speak podcast.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Lovely to be here. We eventually got there. I know it's taken time to get...
1: <laughs> it has, but you're here now. For years. Thank you so much for having me. You have said that everyone can benefit from therapy. How so?
0: The way I see it really is I think traditionally therapy was always kind of associated with people who maybe have more significant or severe mental health problems. And I think that culture has changed a lot over the last five, 10 years. And, and I think in my experience, I think most people arrive in adulthood and they haven't really been taught the skills to deal with all of the big life stuff when it comes along. So we're not really taught growing up how to manage anxiety or to deal with loss or how to deal with challenges when they come in life. And I, and I guess when that happens for most adults, they really grapple and struggle what to do with the difficult emotions and the, the kind of the challenges that come along. And I think this is really where therapy comes in, really. It's teaching people hard to manage thoughts, so hard to emotionally regulate and hard to kind of manage the behaviours in their life that don't serve them well.
1: Is that why you wanted to write the book? Was it really to sort of destigmatize a little bit therapy?
0: And yeah, we I mean we sort of battled a bit with the title and in the UK it's interesting. So for example, in Canada and the States, you know, I think therapy's talked about a lot, probably more than it is in the UK. So we kinda of deliberated a lot whether I should have the word therapy in the title. And in the early days there was kind of some discussion about maybe not having it. And I thought, well, actually no, I don't wanna sort of um, collude with a stigma around that I want to have therapist in the title because that's books about essentially so i think that w- that was in part it was about breaking stigma but it was also about the recognition that a lot of people are really struggling at the moment and therapy is difficult to access you know it's not easy for people to get therapy and it's really expensive and i thought why don't i just write a book that doesn't claim to be a replacement for therapy but at least it gets people started
1: you talk about one of the reasons that people benefit from therapy or even enter therapy is because they fall into unhelpful thinking patterns or thinking traps. What are some of these?
0: It depends on the individual. I mean, every one of us have thinking traps that we fall into. It's kind of part of the human condition, but it'll just depend on your background story and context. So for some people, it might be that they fall into the pattern of self-deprecation or self-criticism. For someone else, it might be that they catastrophize or they're constantly worried about what's coming next, or they're constantly doubting themselves. So, I think these are all you kind know, of ways of thinking and patterns that we develop. And I guess it's up to the individual. One of the things the book teaches is about really how do you identify the patterns that do get in the way of your life, and then more importantly, well, how do you restructure them? Because it's very uncomfortable to be living with kind of uncomfortable patterns that don't serve you well. So, it's you know, the recognition is key, but then obviously transforming the pattern is really important.
1: I want to ask you a bit more step by step about this 10 minutes and how exactly that lays out in our day. But before we get to that, you talk about how therapy isn't a passive experience, but a collaborative process. How is that?
0: It's a really good point, because I think there, there, there's a notion really that therapy, I, I laughed about this the other day, actually, I was doing a different interview. And my, my dad still doesn't really understand what I do as a job. And he said to me recently, what is it you do again? Like you talk to people and you have a cup of tea and you chat. And I said, well, actually, it's a bit more than that. Therapy is not just a chat. It's quite, it's quite an involved process. And I guess the talking is one part of it, but it has to, be, has to be the right type of talking. So, for example, if someone's really depressed or struggling with mood, if they're going to constantly ruminate and talk about the past and get stuck there, then actually it's not going to help them. Or likewise, if somebody is highly anxious and they're talking a lot as a means to getting reassurance, well, then equally, that's going to keep them stuck in anxiety. So even though talking is a part of the therapy process, it's the right type of talking that's structured in a way that the person's going to get the most benefit from it. But it's more than that for me. It's, it's also about the decisions that you make in your life, the people that you surround yourself with, the choices, how much work you're willing to put in. Taking responsibility for your own stuff, you know, looking at your perspective on life. So it's it's essentially an overhaul of how you deal with the entirety of your life. So when I hear people talking about therapy as a chat, it's way more than a chat, it's a complete overhaul of your life.
1: I really like how you say that, you know, what we really need to be doing is getting out and and you encourage your clients to do this, to get out and engage with life. And and you give some great examples of clients who've done that. And it's really been Transformative for them. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think you always kind of have to, you know, tell transformative stories, really, because I think people need to know what the benefits of therapy are. But the, the the key thing, really, is therapy is a very, very active process, and it does, you know, it does involve risk. It does involve sometimes it feels counterintuitive because, you know, for example, if you're feeling depressed or you're feeling highly anxious your instinct will want to be to hide away when actually it's often working against that and doing the opposite. So you're actually facing the very thing that you're frightened of and going against what fear might be telling you. But, you know, like probably, uh, you know, one of the examples in the book, um, I never use kind of client names, obviously, to protect confidentiality. But a good example of you know how it can be transformative was I I worked with a lady um, whose daughter had died, sadly. Her daughter was an adult when she died, but this person I worked with was experiencing a lot of grief and sadness that had been going on for a long time. And she'd seen lots of therapists, she'd talked to lots of people. And when we worked together, it was really clear to me that she was still grieving, but I was also aware that she would got stuck in her grief. And the one thing that I uncovered as we were working in therapy together, that apart from grieving, she was also experiencing quite significant post-traumatic stress disorder in relation to her daughter's death. And actually the trauma had never been processed. And if you don't process the trauma, then it's going to create difficulties in your everyday life. And one of the things we did together in therapy is we worked at processing her trauma. And what happened when we did that was then that she was given really permission to grieve and she started to grieve her daughter properly. And that's kind of really when she started to reclaim her life again and started to, to get her life back on track. So, I think that's one of the really key things about good therapy. And what I try to focus on in the book is really targeting the key areas, you know, not just kind of tiptoeing around issues, but being brave enough to go to where the struggle is and to face that courageously, because that's where you'll get the greatest outcomes.
1: One of the ways that you suggest that we can start to be our own therapist is by telling our story. And you share your own story of growing up gay in a Catholic family in Northern Ireland. Uh, do you think that people can get stuck in a fixed version of their story?
0: Well, look. I mean, the only way I can answer that question, just to, to be honest about my own story, I mean, I think yes, we, we we definitely can, because I think you know every one of us have a story to tell, and and sometimes what we t- we tend to do is we tend to we get stuck in the most the more difficult parts of our story, and certainly that was my experience in therapy. You know. Growing up in Northern Ireland was really challenging because it was during troubles when there was a lot of conflict and bombs and all sorts of awfulness. And also, you know, my, my sexuality was a challenge because Ireland at that time was a very, you know, Catholic driven country. So there was a lot of shame around um, my sexuality. And, and I guess really I realized that when I had my, my own therapy in my early 20s it was that i got stuck in a particular, i get stuck in a very fear driven narrative. And I had get stuck in a very shame-driven narrative. And unless I'd gone to therapy, I don't think I would have been able to navigate my way through that because I didn't realise I was stuck. I kept telling the therapist I was fine, but I wasn't fine. And that was the the bottom line. And I think that's the important thing is to kinda be brave enough to stop, I guess, really, and have a look at the areas in your life where you feel you might be stuck. And often that comes out in our behaviors, you know, the way we behave every day, the way we re- respond to life, the way we react to people in our everyday struggles, really. That's where you get the answer.
1: I really love the sort of small step approach, which is literally minute by minute that you take, because I think when we're really feeling very low and anxious, it can be very overwhelming to think about how we're going to get through it. In fact, how we're going to get through the whole day. So I wondered if you could just take us through what 10 minutes of therapy could look like in someone's day?
0: I mean, yeah, I, I'll not go through the, the entire 10 minutes, otherwise people won't buy the book, which I really hope they do, because I want people to get, the the hopefully, the richness and the material in the book. But what I've done is I've divided 10 minutes over the day. And the reason I did that was uh, um, I was working with a client years ago, and um, they were really struggling, and I was trying to set them work to do between sessions, which you should always do in therapy, because, you know, five percent of the progress happens in therapy 95 percent happens outside of the room and i was working with this client and and i was trying to encourage her to do stuff between sessions and she said look give me 10 minutes and i'll do it anything more than 10 minutes i'm not going to do it i'm too busy i've got a husband i've got four kids i can't fit it into my day and to be honest that was part of the motivation behind the book because i knew it was achievable so i split it up into you know four minutes in the morning, three minutes in the afternoon and three minutes at night. And I guess it's only, probably the best way I can describe it is it's almost like micro injections into your day. And the argument that I have is that if you start off your day with self-therapy, then it gets you set up for the rest of the day. If you suddenly find that by the middle of the day, you've started to derail or go off track, then you come back to stability and center again by again doing more self-therapy. And the end of the day, The process really is about processing and dealing with the day and taking away what you've learned really so that one, that you don't carry all of this stuff to bed with you, but actually you kind of salvage and you take lessons from the day. So it's split up into those areas and that's kind of that. That's the self therapy. And I do, as you rightly say, I break it down literally minute by minute in quite a pedantic way, but it's so that it just doesn't become 10 minutes of doing nothing. It's 10 minutes of very prescriptive. Psychological theories and techniques that we know help and we know work. So, for example, to, to to break it down a little further, the beginning of the day, most people get out of bed and they just basically crash into the day. And the, the first minute of the day is really encouraging people to check in with how they are. You know, what's going on with your mind? What's going on in the body? You know, what it, what does it feel like in there today? It's having a look inwards because you know, for me, the important thing about that is when you know what's going on for you, then you have a choice to do something about that. And you have a choice to then respond to those parts of you. And Kenny almost asked those parts of you. So, for example, if you wake up and you're feeling really anxious on a particular day, you need to know that and you need to understand that. And the checking in with yourself, not only does it mean that the anxiety is heard, but you can then respond to that part of you and ask it what it needs So you then begin to learn to start to look after yourself in a very, very different way. And I guess it's unbelievable that most of us don't really think about doing that on our day. We just get up, we, you know, we brush our teeth, we have a shower, we go straight out to work. But I think, you know, you wouldn't get into your car without doing your safety checks before you drive off. And I think why would we crash into our day without knowing how we are and what we might need in a very, you know, even though it's in a different context, we need to know what we need and we need to know where we're at. So that's kind of how I kickstart the day.
1: For those who haven't read the book, it's not, I mean, because I, I did try this and it's not uh, scary. I mean, there's something scary about thinking, oh God, I've got to start thinking about my feelings in the day. And, you know, we don't always want to acknowledge them. We just want to get on with the day. But it is really fascinating what happens when you start your day and you're feeling anxious because I did this. And you say to yourself, I'm feeling anxious. And even just saying it to yourself somehow kind of brings it down a little bit.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, it, it's fascinating. I mean, I, I believe, I mean, and, and different psychologists and therapists talk about this in different ways. But we're, we're all made up with different parts, no matter who we are. And we have all of these parts to you that are quite active. And they're, you know, some people describe them like protective parts. So you have your anxious self, your frightened self, your angry self. There are all these different parts of us that are playing out all of the time. And often what most of us do is when these parts come up because they feel really uncomfortable, we work really hard to push them down or get rid of them. When actually these parts serve a purpose, they're trying to communicate with us. They're parts of who we are, but often we neglect them. And I guess the whole premise of this part of the work is to to not run away from these parts because actually the more you learn to respond to them, they feel less isolated. And then suddenly... For example, with anxiety, just as you brilliantly described, you know, you let the anxiety that it's not alone, that there's nothing to be frightened of, that you're with it, that you're supporting it and that you stay with it. Then suddenly the anxiety begins to quieten because suddenly it doesn't feel isolated. And I think for most people, anxiety, you know, anxiety often isn't a new thing. Often anxiety is stuff that's probably been going on for quite a while. But the one thing we don't do is we, so for example, you know, my story growing up in Northern Ireland, I was very anxious when I was younger because I was kind of hardwired to be fearful. And that was very understandable. But if my anxiety comes up as an adult, I've got to acknowledge it and and, and go to it. But I've also got to remind my anxiety that I'm now older, that the threat isn't there anymore and that we're safe. So it's beginning to, you're, you're actually feeding new information to that part of you. So that it functions much, much better,
1: and the rest of the day, there's an enormous amount, and this is why I want people to be afraid to get in touch with their feelings at the start of the day, because so much of it is then a lot of self soothing yeah, which feels good
0: well, it should it should be i mean here's the thing really in in my experience, I would say probably ninety five percent of clients I meet. When they come to me, let let me give you a bit of context, actually, which might be helpful. So as human beings, we're 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 driven by three mechanisms generally, and these mechanisms are called threat, drive and soothe. So I'll just explain them really quickly. So threat mechanism is really our anxiety mechanisms. And that's kind of really when we're on guard or we're watching out for danger or threat. And most of us have very active threat systems that we work with very well and we're very tuned into it. Our drive system is those parts of us, uh, you know, we want to achieve, we want to do better, we want to do more, we want to grow, we want to be bigger. So that's the part of it is move, moving forward in life. And very often what you find is a lot of people have highly active threat systems and they have highly active drive systems. But then when you ask them about self-soothing, how do they look after themselves? How do they calm themselves? How do they, you know, How do they manage the more difficult parts of their life? Most people don't really know how to, to utilize that system at all. And, you know, as I was saying earlier, there, I would say probably 95% of my clients come with a, either a highly activated threat system or a highly activated drive system or both. But most people do not have access to their soothing system. So this is why I constantly re- reiterate throughout the book, you know, you, you are the solution. You have the, the, the capacity and the, the abilities to, to be able to soothe. But part of my job and part of any good therapist's job is to help you find that so that you can access that part of you. And then suddenly life takes on a very, very different meaning when you learn how to manage these parts of you, because then you're not reliant on someone else doing it for you or you're not reliant on booze or drugs or whatever you're using to soothe. You find different ways of soothing yourself and that, that's quite liberating.
1: I like how you say the most consistent part of your life is you.
0: Yep, it's got to be. There's kind of no negotiating around that at all. Actually, I means so. No, we're stuck with ourselves, really, aren't we? you know, whether we really like it or not, we are, we are stuck with our story, who we are, how we function, how we operate in this world. But the good news in that is, you know, the the, the parts of it of our story and the parts of us that are we struggle with and are difficult, we can also work on those parts of us. And we can do something about that. So, you know, my my key argument is: look, you are stuck with yourself for the rest of your life. So, it's a pretty good idea to get comfortable with with yourself, and and get get a, get at ease with yourself, because actually, it's going to make the journey a lot a lot smoother.
1: You have a portion of the day that's dedicated to gratitude, a fantastic grounding technique, which I won't reveal, but is really. Amazing, and then sort of an end of end of day cleanse, which is like literally washing washing your hands at the end of the day. It could be, it's all very accessible and very easy to connect with, and, and again, very very soothing.
0: Can I mention something about the, the gratitude thing? Actually, because I think it's a really really important thing. That I mean, some of this stuff. When I was doing that, you know, because you know how I operate as a therapist, as you know from reading the book. I mean, it is very active. It's not passive at all. It's a it's a it's a really active. Doing process, and when it came to gratitude and stuff, I mean, we see loads of stuff online every day around gratitude and be kind and all of this stuff. And I think there's a danger that it becomes a bit cliched and and almost a little bit woo-woo, and people get cynical about it. When interestingly, um, the, the kind of neuroscience and psychology research tells us that actually, when we opt into a state of gratitude, and most people, regardless of circumstances, can normally find a few things that they're grateful for. You know, even if it's the fact that they're alive, that they have a roof over their head, that they have people in their life or they have a pet or something. You know, people, when when you work with people, you'll find that most people can find a few things that they're grateful for. And what we know from the science is that not only does that move your mindset to a different place, but even kind of chemically, it just kind of helps with the production of dopamine and serotonin reuptake. And so actually you get a chemical shift in the brain that's quite useful. So when we're thinking about things like gratitude, even though it might sound a bit wishy-washy, actually, chemically, you're doing something quite helpful for the brain. But actually, even in terms of focus and perspective, it's really, really difficult to be negative when you're being grateful. The two don't marry up quite well together. And I think if you are having a particularly tough day or things are negative, it's always a really useful thing to stop in that moment and say, "Okay, this is difficult. I'm struggling. But can I just kind of tune in momentarily for a couple of things I'm grateful for? And it's it's incredible. I do this a lot. At any point of struggle in my day, I kind of think, all right, this is a difficult moment. But, you know, are there any things in this moment I can be grateful for? And without feel, I'll always find something.
1: Sometimes it's just the hot drink you have in your hand
0: at that moment. I mean, honestly, I guess this is one of the things about getting older as well, as I mean, I've really noticed that, it, for me, it's it's much more simple than it would have been years ago. You know, earlier, for example, I've had a busy day today with clients and various meetings and all sorts of stuff today. And I went for a walk earlier, just for 20 minutes between clients. And um, it's, a, it's a really nice day here in London today. And the sky, you know, it was, it was sunny and it was warm and it was lovely, just a perfect day. And, um, and I went for a walk and, you know, I, I was able to find a dozen things that I was grateful for in those 20 minutes. Just, you know, just even the, the heat. Now, don't get me wrong, it's London. It wasn't hot. <laughs> it, it was at 12 degrees. That's hot for us at this time of the year. But it was lovely. And, you know, I could hear nature and even having a break and being able to factor that 20 minutes into my day. And the fact that I kind of think, actually, I'm doing a job that I love. And all, all of those things, you then start to, to, to build them up. And you think, oh, that really, it changes the landscape of my day.
1: You mentioned that you've had clients that didn't even want the word therapist on their invoice. Do you think that people have become more open to seeking professional help than they were, say, a few years ago?
0: I think it's improving. We're definitely getting better. The fact that, you know, look in the UK, I brought this book out last summer and it was a Sunday Times bestseller here in the UK. So that tells us something about the shift in culture. You know, if I can have How to Be Your Own Therapist and it's a bestseller book then we've moved somewhere okay so that's really healthy because a few years ago I'm not sure we would have done this because it would have been seen as too big a risk and in fact I did have the conversation a few years ago and was advised by someone not to do it that people wouldn't be interested in the UK in a therapy book so even in the last couple of years we've definitely moved in a different direction but I think you know the fact that I, you know, as, as this is my job, and I had to really stop and think about whether I put therapy on, on the book. Um, but I have had clients, yeah, said, please don't put, well, I've had clients traditionally in an office I hired asking me not to have a um, therapist on the door because they didn't want people to know where they were coming to. Um, I've had people say, can you not put therapist, can you put coach or wellness session but can you not put therapy on it so yeah over the years to be honest it's, even recently I had someone ask me not to put my title because they wanted it um, just to have it as health and well-being check. So so it, it still happens so we've still got a degree of stigma around it but we are definitely definitely moving in the right direction that said I think there's probably a note of caution here I think conversations are great we're having a lot of conversations around mental health which I support. One of my kind of concerns at the moment is I think we're over-pathologizing people. And I think there's a danger that we start to, I I don't like the word disorders. So as you know, psychiatry manuals, the DSM criteria, we'll talk about disorders, anxiety disorders, mood disorders, trauma disorders. We talk about these things a lot. And I think when, you know, there's something for me about labeling anyone disorder, the personality disorder. I mean, if you take personality disorder for example you know someone with a personality disorder you know is normally somebody who's had a really tough time in their life and they find different parts of their personality to cope and adjust and manage life and I think if we call people disordered if we start over pathologizing people I think we run the danger of falling into a different set of problems so I think we need to be careful I certainly in my work try more and more and more to humanize the conversations and keep it more straightforward in that you're a human being, which means sometimes you will struggle. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It doesn't mean that it's terrible. It means that you're a human being.
1: When do you think that people should be looking for professional help? At what
0: point? I mean, there, there isn't a prescriptive one line answer to that. But as a general rule, what I would say is that, you know, if you discover that you're having more bad days than good days over, you know, a period of several weeks, that's probably the time to consider speaking to someone about getting support or sometimes it's medication. It very much depends on context. But I think, yeah, if the bad days are really starting to outweigh the good days and that's gone on for several weeks, that's the time to get help.
1: You touch on this a little bit about how to find a therapist and how to find the right therapist and it's kind of like finding a needle in a haystack. Can can you offer just some advice on on how to go about that?
0: The key thing about therapy is, I mean, look, every, you know, therapists are trained and we have experience and we, we have to have hundreds of hours of our own practice supervised, you know. So, you know, one, you want to know that you're, you're with a licensed, accredited, qualified therapist. And I think it's a really important thing to see it. You know, some people will call themselves a therapist, but it's worth checking that they're, fully qualified, fully trained, fully accredited. Because some of some of the regulatory bodies, you can, you can have membership of a body, but that doesn't mean that you're fully accredited. So some people will advertise themselves as, you know, I'm a therapist and I have membership of a regulatory body, but they may not be fully accredited. So I think it's really important that you do your due diligence and you check out your the therapist credentials and their training and all of that stuff. But I think most importantly, outside of that, You've got to be in the room with someone that you fundamentally trust and that you feel comfortable with. And and sometimes there is no right or wrong or there is no sort of right or reason how that works out. But I kind of think it's really important that when you meet the therapist, you get an opportunity to chat to them. You've got to go in there knowing that you're comfortable enough to be with them. And sometimes that doesn't come straight away, but you'll get an instinct and you'll get a sense that um, the person you're talking to is the right person for you, and that you can become... My, this is this is going to sound really ironic. My first therapist was a nun, an Irish Catholic nun. And I went to see her. I was just about to come out. I was dealing with my sexuality at the time, and I was really struggling. And someone, a friend of mine said, I've got someone that you, you should go talk to. They didn't tell me, she, they gave me a name, but they didn't tell me she was a nun. And when I got there, I got the shock of my life. Now, in theory, that shouldn't have worked out. I, mean, I was about to come out as gay and I go to see a nun as my therapist. So none, none of that should have worked. Um, but She was incredible, you know, the most incredible therapist, the most incredible human being. And and that ultimately was about trust and um, and just about, you know, who she was as a human being and how we related to each other and her. There was a great moment actually when I, you know, I was struggle, really struggling trying to tell her what I was, why I had come there. And um, I eventually I, I built, I said, look, I've got this secret and I haven't told anyone. And she said, OK, well, whenever you're ready. And I kind of went around the houses kind of trying to tell her this big secret about my sexuality. And when I eventually managed to say to her, look, I, you know, uh, I, th- I think I might be. And, and I was kind of garbling my words. And then eventually I said, I'm gay. And she just paused. She just went really, really quiet for a moment. And then she said, is that it? And I said, yeah, that's it. And she went, okay, God, she said, I I thought you were going to tell me something terrible. (laughs) And we laughed. And it was just that moment of normalizing, you know, and I I guess the acceptance of me bringing something that I thought was shameful and her being able to meet me in the room without shame or judgment and say, this is okay, and not judge it. And that was the kind of the beginning of a, a great relationship, really. And the fact that she had a great sense of humor and she was, yeah, she, she was just very much on a very human level, I think, that worked for me. So I guess, you know, you, you kind of need to find the person that, that is right for you. Some people may need a therapist who's more academic and intellectual. Um, some people may need someone who's a little bit lighter and, you know, softer and maybe a sense of humor. I, I guess it just depends. But the one thing I would say, this is probably the most important thing, ultimately. Therapy shouldn't feel good and lovely and fluffy all of the time. Because it's hard work and it's challenging, and you're actually facing who you are, and that's difficult sometimes. So, if therapy feels wonderful all the time, then you're probably in the wrong therapy.
1: You worked for a big part of your career with people who are terminally ill. How has this sort of shaped the way that you work as a therapist?
0: I mean, it's probably you know at the heart and soul of my work. When when I started writing books and stuff, I kind of you know the opportunity came very randomly and very oddly actually i never planned to write books it wasn't you know it wasn't on my tick list and this incredible opportunity came along And when i sat down to do it i thought okay well if i do this there, there are three things that i want to include so obviously i want to include my psychology and psychotherapy knowledge that has to be there and that has to be an important part of it but i don't want it just to be another psychology book so i also want to include what 10 years of working with the dying has taught me and how it influenced my practice. And I also want to include what my own story has taught me, because I think too many therapists, I think it's easy for us to hide behind our titles and professional accolades and all of this sort of stuff. And I think actually we have to, particularly if you're going to use these platforms and you're going to do podcasts and books and all this stuff, I think you have to be brave enough to tell your own story and include that. So they, they were the three non negotiables for me and that's how I, I kinda drive my work. But the ten years with people who are terminally ill, yeah, that was um that was a real privilege to to have done that work, not only with the, the patients, but also their families. And I guess really, you know, you can't do that work every day and not get a sense of what matters in life and what's important. And I think certainly the richness and the lessons from that work Um, Is something I try and, yeah, weave into my practice every day, really, which is just really about, you know, making the best of the life that we have. You know, that work was never about working with people who were dying. It was about working with people who were living in the process of dying. So the emphasis was always on living whilst dying. And I guess ultimately, if truth be told, that's what we're all doing. You know, so it it was very much the, the emphasis was on, you know, getting the fullness of your life and and really unapologetically getting the fullness from your life.
1: At the start of our conversation, you talked about how, you know, we've all been through a really difficult few years. What keeps you feeling hopeful and optimistic?
0: Look, my life has had its challenges and ups and downs and, and various shapes and forms over the years. And I guess really, I guess when you grow up, this is an, uh, an interesting thing. I remember during lockdown, when the kind of world was shut down and no one was going anywhere and we were all stuck at home, I noticed with a lot of people, not only in my professional life, but in my personal life, a lot of people were really overwhelmed and struggling. And, and I kind of, I, I was actually finding it okay. And I kind of thought, okay, well, this has happened. I can't change it. I can't do anything about it. I, I'm going to have to adjust. And then I suddenly realized in the middle of this, uh, when I grew up in Northern Ireland during the troubles in Belfast, um, there were a lot of periods when you couldn't go out there's was a lot of periods when it was too dangerous to go anywhere. There was a lot of periods when it was highly unpredictable and it didn't feel like you knew what was going to happen next. And what I realized was that that period taught me how to adjust. And it also taught me that difficult periods come to an end, that they don't last forever. So I guess kind of a big part of my story has, has been the realization that no matter how difficult things are, that there is always an end point, that it, it's not a permanent state and i guess that's one of the things that's always helped me stay hopeful that even in the midst of the most awful adversity um this is not a permanent state and i say that to anyone listening today who's struggling now you know whatever's going on for you at the moment it is not a permanent state it feels like it sometimes when you're in the thick of it but there is always a way through there is there are always options there is always support there's always helps and there's always a possibility of things being better than they are today. So I think holding on to that is something that I've lived by and I try to use every day.
1: Your book is called How to Be Your Own Therapist, Boost Your Mood and Reduce Your Anxiety in Ten Minutes a Day. It's available now. Owen O'Kane, thank you so much for speaking with me today.
0: You're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com
1: slash podcast.